things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the merry, the very merry other half, <laughs> the one and only DJ. As we push into the Christmas season, folks, uh, both of us get a little busy, and so we're actually, this is our rest time here talking to you today. So. <laughs> right. I know, I know. We were supposed to record last night, didn't work out, and so now it's like, this is this is actually how I'm kicking off my my Christmas vacation. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> my wife actually for uh, our Christmas uh, gathering and getting together business, which is just my sister-in-law coming over, hopefully without a dog, uh, <laughs> put me to work making Christmas trees for out of like wood for stocking holders. So that's that was my Christmas kickoff. They came out really great. All right. Awesome. So we're going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass interlude, Kansas somewhere, some when, and start part three come reap uh-oh uh chapter one beneath the huntress moon and then we'll close out the show with our thoughts on the first episode of the stand that isn't strictly dark tower but it has randall flag in it so it counts and <laughs> and not to mention it's like totally referenced in the book that we're currently reading now so perfect timing and then we have of course some listener feedback from the facebook group that we'll we'll really close out the show with before we get into that, though, I do have some exciting news to share with everyone. Ooh. Yes. I mean, we teased this on a show a little bit, but now I'm making the official announcement that we are launching a Patreon on January 1st. And, you know, we've been talking about it forever. And the reason it took so long is because we really wanted to do it thoughtfully and really think through everything we were going to be doing um, perks wise to make sure that it was something that people would be really excited about and I think we came up with some really fun stuff we're going to offer a ton of perks at lots of different levels including but not limited to early access to episodes extended episodes oh yeah bonus episodes of which we have recorded a couple and DJ <laughs> Any thoughts on those bonus episodes? I mean, so you throw me in a chat room slash uh, podcast with like four ladies, and for some reason it actually turned out okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I I thought it was really fun. It's definitely a much more um, uncensored, off the cuff style podcast episode. <laughs> I mean, we have some structured stuff coming down the pipe, but like I think to begin with, we just want to have some fun and. And I think we were successful. Uh, it's funny. I talked to Mars and I was like, hey, what did you think about these bonus episodes? She's like, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, it gets a little hazy about halfway through. <laughs> so I feel like that's a good sign, right? Yeah. And um, when I described it to someone, I was like, I I'm the only boy in the group. And they're like, yes. What do you mean, boy? I'm like, well, because, you know, like with a bunch of, of ladies, like uh, I'm not really the man of the group. I'm just like the weird <laughs> boy. The, You're a zombie boy. Yeah, I'm just a boy. I love just it. Talking about like boy stuff, you know. I mean, we definitely talked about boy stuff for sure. <laughs> we yeah, mostly poops, but that will save that's the tease for people. Um, yeah. So there's that plus, you know, just opportunities for access to us and um, activities with us that we're really excited about and and more and more so keep an eye on our facebook group keep an eye on our zg twitter keep an eye on 
I guess those are the two places. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll make we'll we'll definitely be announcing those when it launches on January first, and we hope there's something there that you're excited about. All right, cool. So that's it for housekeeping. I guess we can get into this, but before we do that, DJ, can you please let our listeners know what our spoiler policy is? Like a game of poker where you don't know what the cards are until we release them into the wild to go up against your opponent, we will draw a line on the table and let you know before those cards come out. So no spoilers for you until the cards are dealt. <laughs> DJ, where did we leave off? Uh, so we know that like uh, uh, basically Rhea was kind of keeping an eye on Roland. Uh, she didn't succeed in getting Susan to cut her hair off. And uh, these guys are eloping. So that that's kind of where we we took took our last spin in the hay, so to speak, with Roland and Susan. And now we pause the story and cut back to present, where the gang is hanging out next to a thinny in the current time. And mm-hmm. Roland has paused the story. We find out that basically um, night has been going on for as long as Roland has been telling the story and night will continue to go on until the story is complete. It's a little confusing. I'm not sure I know other than to say that like Stephen King's messing with time or the Roland telling the story needs to be in one night and one sitting. And then Eddie kind of brings up a really good point. He asks him like, how do you know all the facets of the story? Because Roland's not just telling the story from his perspective he's telling it like we're reading it like uh mm-hmm. omniscient basically mm-hmm. and, and so it's kind of weird that he would be able to tell the perspectives of all of the characters uh to you know to to the t basically and then there's one thing i wanted to ask you about um right before he cuts back to start starting to uh, tell the story again uh I think Susanna says, like, go straight for the vein to finish mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think that means? I mean, I think it's kind of what she's essentially saying is go for the jugular. Like, let's let's go for this because. And this is something that I was noticing about or I was wondering about Susan, Susanna in general is that like they. T- so here's a quote from from it. it says Susanna stirred like a woman who rises partway from a dream who holds her like a sweet quickstand. Okay. She gave Eddie a look that was both distant and impatient. Let the man talk, Eddie. And so I was thinking about Susanna and her gifts, right? And one of them is to be able to see. And I was thinking maybe what we're seeing here is kind of she basically is not just hearing the story. She is having a vision and seeing this as it unfolds. And so I think some of that is her being basically knowing where this story is headed. And it's just kind of like, let's get into it. Go like, don't, don't goof around. Let's just go straight for the jugular. Hmm. Okay. What did you think? I don't know. I, um, when I heard it, I was trying to think of metaphors and mm-hmm. I, so uh, strangely, um, there's a farm thing where like, you uh um if you're castrating like sheep or or cows or whatever like you pull the vein out and and then you like chop it and tie it and so i i almost was thinking like as soon as he finishes the story that like this will deprecate him from the pain that the story is is held for him for so long and i don't it's kind of a reach but it sort of felt like very specific and strange that she said it that way and then i'm like well if he finish like as soon as he finishes the story, you'll have it off of his chest, and it's yeah. almost the same thing as like unburdening himself or like castrating himself 
from that story or, or whatever. Right. And and that is his like young youth. It's his, like this sexiness from you know naked times with the ladies, all this business. Yeah. And, and so I almost felt like that's what kind of work she was like pointing at because you know you don't think Roland now is like a sexual being. You think of him as like um, a fighter and like. More... I mean, he did get his groove on back in Tull. Yeah, that's true. Okay. But I mean, like, that almost felt like just going through the paces, didn't it? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it didn't, it was not a passionate connection. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe, it also feels like name. a very different Roland, and he's evolved so much as a character that, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, you don't see him as being like a, I mean, I guess as a, yeah, a sexual being is, like, I guess, the best way of putting it <laughs> him that way. So, okay. But I do want to circle back a little bit to this thing where, eddie asked like how do you know every corner of this story okay which i think is something that has definitely come up we've talked about it i think and it's been kind of in the back of my mind but at the same time i was just willing to just you know it's omniscient narrator that happens all the time in books whatever it's not directly what roland was saying and yet this seems to imply that actually no the story as we're hearing it is probably what roland is saying or something very close to it and so i think it's interesting that king decided you know like hey here is this thing you guys are probably all wondering i'm going to point it out but then i'm just not going to answer it he literally like just sort of hand waves it away dismissing what what eddie is saying but why He's did like, king go out of the way to it, it, like draw or shine a light on it then because that's the that's right. the part that's strange like you wouldn't shine a light on it unless you were going to explain it and then you just like don't explain it Right, which either he must explain it in the future or he is just kind of like, yeah, like I admit that this is weird that Roland knows all this stuff, but magic. <laughs> I think maybe it's implying that that uh, Roland is like psychic again, that we mm. kind of have the um, yeah, maybe. the shining going on here where like Roland knows all of these things that are happening in the story because he also like kind of could feel it out. Is that maybe I mean, it's possible. It I think it's weird that he dodges the question, though, because he he doesn't he doesn't not only not answer it, but he also is like, isn't that what isn't what you're really wondering why, it, you know, it's still nighttime or how long it's been going on? Like he changes the subject, which makes me think either we're going to get an explanation or King is just trying to do the same to us as listeners. It's like, mm. yeah, 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 but that doesn't really... Here's this other interesting thing that probably hasn't even occurred to you that's occurring as well that's sort of cool and metaphysical, which is that, you know, the night is going to last as long as he needs it to in order to be able to fully tell his story, which definitely brought me back to the... I, I think it's a callback to his night at the Golgotha in the first book, where he had the night that lasted for however you know, long he needed in order for the man in black to disseminate whatever that weird metaphysical story was that we learned in the first book hmm yeah i mean that's as good as answer as any i think I don't, I don't it's know. just it's interesting though that he he wants to take the time to tell you that they're essentially in some kind of suspended animation essentially like even though eddie says he's like you know i'm not stiff and i'm not hungry and i'm not tired but you've been talking for what feels really like days yeah, yeah i don't know it's just it's just interesting uh, the way that King will kind of play with the ways in which this universe is breaking down without fully giving you an explanation. They're just these little hints about the, the you know, the weirdness of the world that this is set in. There's even one, one other hint I wanted to kind of underline it. Cause I just, just thought it was fun. Um, 
when the gang is sitting around the fire and like they have this little break, even Oi joins in to uh, yeah. you know, tell like tell the story. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Oi is listening to the story and understanding it as well as the rest of the group. I mean, maybe. I I mean, on one hand, you could just interpret it as he just repeats everything that Jake says. Uh, but okay. I do think there's there's evidence for Oi being a lot smarter than you would think. Like, understanding when Roland gave him those directions on how to save Jake. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are not the most sophisticated of instructions, but they're a lot more than your average pet would be able to interpret. Like, you got to go there, and then you got to wait. You gotta wait for the timing to be right, and then you're gonna jump. I mean, though, there is some degree of subtlety there that that shows that Oi is definitely smarter than your average, you know, dog or whatever. I just thought that was kind of fun, and like mm-hmm. also like a little expansion of of Oi as right. a character to be like, hey, I'm listening to the story too. Keep going. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair interpretation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, did I miss anything in nope. this section before we that's move on? That's it. Let's move on. All right, so. Then we cut to this kind of like weird bit, uh, which is basically just a description of like what happens in the fall in Hambry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Stephen King kind of waxes and wanes about the moon and like what folks are up to, how they're harvesting, what the harvesting looks like, what people are preparing for as far as um, their regular rituals of dancing and meeting girls and uh, getting their dresses ready. And it's sort of just this cute like overview of a uh, solstice style party basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like it even goes into a depth of uh, people like storing up hay and being kind of upset that they have to do this work and why do they bother and then remembering oh yeah winter's coming and like you'll be trapped in your house if you don't have all these supplies Mm -hmm. ready to go and and so uh, it's these sorts of things aren't usually my favorite but i actually really liked yes because it's we didn't. We kind of had to imagine what was going on in Hambry, and I'm still a little unsure. I'm completely wrapped my head around like the way the fishing village is set up against the backdrop of this also like pastoral area. Mm-hmm. But this opened it up a little bit more and kind of gave you a feel for why this area is seen as sort of um, idyllic to mm-hmm. the bigger, um, bigger groups and towns around it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point because, I mean, that's something that's a reoccurring theme in this chapter is this perception of what Hambry is to other parts of Midworld. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see why that is. But also it kind of seeds in the idea of in addition to just sort of being this beautiful bucolic rural community that there is sort of this darker edge to it because we get the information about how the snakes and the scorpions come out of the desert and you have to tighten down your ankles because there's all these predators that come in and then it becomes like a a game where they all hunt these that one i actually wanted to under underline and, and ask you about um so you have like this idyllic description but then you also have sort of the nailing the snake carcasses and the yeah. scorpion carcasses to the front of your hitching post right that almost seemed like uh, um, some kind of stephen king metaphor for despite this looking beautiful and comfortable like there's a seedy underbelly yeah i think that's exactly what it is is it's like do not be um, charmed away from like yeah being... don't have a false sense of security here because there is snakes in the grass scorpions in the grass that you need to be watching out for i also think the timing of it being under the hunter's moon is huntress's moon is really interesting and kind of comes back to this idea of predator and prey and 
I think we have to think about who we think the predators and the preys are in this section. But yeah, I also, like you, I really, really enjoyed this description more than I would have thought. I think it part of it is that it does kind of end on that creepy note, but also I feel like it really enriches the story by taking the time to do real world building and mm-hmm. it, it allows you sort of as a reader a transition from you kind of get pulled out of the story when suddenly you're back in Kansas and so this this functions as a way to sort of ease you back into this world and kind of like you can almost see the picture of it kind of reforming in your mind as you're like Susanna like slipping back into the past into this story and it, it feels very real because it adds all these details of the clothes that people are wearing, it feels like a rich culture uh, in a way that that really just sort of adds to the world building and the set building that's happening here. So, well, And it also like uh, opens up and, and adds to what later on will be kind of the view from uh, from the big coffin hunters point yeah. of view of, of how the kids ended up in this area, mm-hmm. which I, I think like in, in hindsight, after finishing this chapter, like of course you have to begin with that because yeah. now you're going to use that as something to underline when you get to get to the end of the chapter. Right. It puts you in the place of someone from another part of the country and like or the world where you could be, where you could picture what Hambry is like. And it's a perfect example of showing and not just telling us like, Oh, they all think it's safe out here. Like that's a concept I understand, but having this picture painted for you, like you're like, oh yes, I could see how someone would look at this part of the world and be like, nothing is safer than this, so this little. Cute this is kind of a world. weird aside, but like, I, I the first time I went to New York, I met someone and asked him like, uh, you know, uh, what you do in New York, and then they started asking me about Nebraska, and like, lo and behold, somebody else at another table pops up and is like. Hey, do you guys still like ride around horses and covered wagons? Oh my god! <laughs> and, and like, that's sort of the feeling I got with this description. It's like I was like, well, I bet that's part of the disdain from. I mean, it is the part of the disdain that they got when they first showed up to town of the city folks, is because you know, like, oh, they're just a bunch of backwards folks in this like old farming community, right. being farmers doing farm stuff. You know, like. It, it becomes less of a real occupation and more of this like uh, almost a uh, f- uh, false world that is only narrated from like a little house on the prairie episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely adds some context to the way that the sheriff treats them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and also it kind of indicts exactly that he wasn't that wrong in terms of his interpretation of what Roland and the gang were thinking of his small little town. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I like the section. We cut to Roland and like kind of get this lovemaking description. Uh, um, they've been meeting up and having trysts in different places. Uh, they've got kind of a thing going where they were using Shimi for a little while and using like a red rock and then different signaling methods. They've got a shack out by the, by, I guess at the end of the fishing area that's been abandoned in an old fishing shack that they meet up and have have their little trysts in mm-hmm. and roland and susan are kind of like thinking about their situation and the safety and danger of what they've got going on and they sort of get a little adult here and and actually discuss what the best way is for them to communicate and realize that their communication through shimi is is a chance to put him in jeopardy and that even though he is doing a good job and seems like a trustworthy person Roland doesn't really feel 
like it's right to put him in danger mm-hmm. uh to to continue their relationship and then roland also like actually um so basically uh they've got this brick that's a red brick that they've been hiding like notes behind mm-hmm. but roland realizes right away that basically that is not safe at all and putting that kind of exposure out is not the way to do this and at the same time we also get this like view from um susan's point of view of the fact that her aunt is kind of like cognizant of the number of rides she's been taking (laughs) and there's a funny little bit in here where um where susan uses the excuse that ria gave her (laughs) right 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 which I kind of like, I giggled at, and then also like we have this later uncomfortable moment with Rhea that I oh my God, now I don't Rhea. know if I want to remember Rhea anymore. Right, right. God, is there? I'm trying to think. Is there a less likable character in all of the, the Stephen King universe? And I don't. Nothing oh, comes there, to there mind. There probably is. It's just that right now, where she's staring you in the face, you're just like, nope, you're awful. Yep, yep. yep. We've got all this like basically build up of them together, but it, it's sort of just been like a whirlwind relationship, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there. I love how this opens. First of all, with this idea of you know, true love is boring unless you're actually the person who's experiencing all this, and it's kind of Stephen King tipping his hat to. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you every single kiss they share and every time they bang. Like, <laughs> we're done with that. Like, just know that this is ongoing. So instead, what we do is we get basically the story of like all the elaborate steps that they're taking in order to make sure that they are being careful. And you could see from their perspective, like how they think they're being really circumspect about how they're handling things but mm-hmm. it's repeatedly undercut by the reminder that how they are totally blinded by their love they this can't last forever no matter what they do eventually they're going to get caught and it's just a matter of trying to make it long enough right roland is really kind of in an unroland like way completely love struck and not really taking into account the bigger picture well before we get to that um i wanted to double back around to the true love is boring statement yeah And, like, Stephen King spends a lot of time basically describing true love in the same way that uh, an addict would be addicted to, like, drugs. Yes. I'm glad you brought this up. Or, you know, grass or whatever. Uh And and the thing is, is, like, the the love is – true love is boring. Like, he kind of also makes it seem a little depressing. Like, it's it's exciting to the people that are involved in it. But from the outside perspective, it's just like a a repetitive task that you're doing over and over again. Yeah. And then Stephen King even, like, drifts into this point where he's like – and at some point, those kisses aren't going to be as exciting as they used to be. And those touches and caresses <laughs> are going to bore you and be tedium. And I know. Man. I mean, he's not wrong, but still, it is a little grim. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I think, like, the reason he did that, and and I wanted your take on it, too, but is that it sort of felt like Stephen King wanted to make sure and underline that they are still in this, like, blissful, passionate yeah. phase. Mm-hmm. And that everybody has that and it eventually fades away i mean i think it's more about the people around them but i do think that that is also true like basically that and i'm sure you've experienced this where you had a friend that was like in love for the first time and at first it's interesting but eventually you're like oh my god i cannot oh when you're like 17 through 15 every true love is like the, the only one for you and it could never be any other way until like it isn't right exactly The other thing I think is interesting, I'm glad you circled back to this, is that our metaphor has changed. 
you know, up until now, every time we talked about their love, I've talked about this at length, is that it's all like wind metaphors and yep. nature sweeping them away. And now after they've actually sealed the deal and they're now in the grip of cause, everything is drug metaphor throughout this entire chapter everything is described through the perspective of someone who is in the throes of addiction he he starts with the thing about love being boring and then he talks about repeatedly about how he's in a stupor and if you were to look at try to talk to him if you knew someone who was in a drug addiction would recognize the same look of distance and futility that you would over and over again this this metaphor changes and takes on this much darker tone than it has up until this point yeah, and that's why I wanted to underline that because when Roland starts to interact with Keith Burt and Elaine, he he sort of they're expecting like a passionate response from him or him to be upset, but he kind of just like half-heartedly is like, yeah, whatever. And, right. And and that's the almost like passiveness of someone who is in the midst of of uh um using drugs or not caring about the world around him, only focused right. on the one thing. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that kind of paints a completely different role than what we've seen before where like he's supposed to be the the coolest and like most um thought out and ahead of the rest of the group in terms of leadership and like he's fallen into this point of not really yeah. caring right and or thinking hard about the subject right right which is not great for Cuthbert and Elaine uh, we cut to uh, Keith Burton and Elaine, and they're grumpy and like sort of stewing. Uh, Roland's out having a good time, yeah. And we find out that, um, well, actually, this is kind of really important, yeah. That uh, that Keith Burton's like he's lost his rook skull, yeah, and like that's upset him and put him off. And then we also find out that he secretly, sort of deep in his heart, has like a crush on susan hmm. and is like jealous of roland in multiple ways that yeah. we, i wasn't really expecting yeah like roland is sort of he's dating the prettiest girl that they've ever seen in their entire life yeah. which like makes him first to to get to that point and he's uh derelicting his duties which were also like a thing that they sort of looked up to him for yeah. and so both of these guys are, are mad at Roland, and they're also like a little bit mad at Susan mm-hmm. in that weird sort of like double mad way where it's like you she's smart, she knows what's going on here, mm-hmm. and she knows this is affecting our mission and what we've got going on ourselves. And you start to realize that wait a minute, maybe she doesn't, and that they're both in this drug addict stupor yeah. of of love with each other and not paying attention to the rest of the world around them. Which is a dangerous place to be when you have, you know, tankers hidden behind things and and uh, a war going on off in the distance with folks coming your direction. We basically find out, too, that uh, the gang is all going to be heavy smokers by the time yeah. they leave this place. <laughs> dark. Like, that's, a, that's a dark, strange turn of events. Yeah. And yeah. the funny thing is, like, um, he, he even mentions, like, your dad would whack that out of your hands. If he, right if he right. saw that and and so you know that it's not like proper behavior but they're you know kids away from home and they're not drinking so they're smoking right 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 so you got a lot of stars here and i probably uh covered this poorly so i will let no you worries. no worries fill in the gaps yeah I, I thought this was a really interesting chapter because it's really the one where we get the most insight into elaine and cuthbert's dynamic 
we've had a, a previous chapter that was similar to this, but it was all about meaningful looks as opposed to people like actually saying out loud what they're feeling so that you could see how the two of them interacted. So that in and of itself, I thought was really interesting, but, but also the, what we actually learn here is really, and the way that it's handled is very interesting. I love this line at the beginning where he says, Roland's friends. So Cuthbert and Elaine watched Roland descend into addiction, first with disbelief, envy, and an uneasy amusement, then with a species of silent horror. And we find out that, you know, what all that means is basically, like you said, there is an element of jealousy that has kind of come to the fore with Cuthbert and Roland. On one hand, it's frustrating because obviously he's got the prettiest girl, but there's something else here that I think is actually deeper and I think really well done. And and King, we've talked about how he's very good at describing sort of the adolescent love and like really getting at teen angst. And here I think he gets at something even more subtle, but also very accurate, which is how the change in the dynamic of a friendship between, you know, especially in these early phases when they're like falling in love for the first time and mm -hmm. experiencing new things for the first time, that there is a lot of confusion and hurt of being left behind and having a relationship change and having no kind of say in the way that it changes. And for Cuthbert, it's, it's coming out as misplaced anger on Susan, but also there's, there's like a deep jealousy of having his, his best friend taken away. And I think that that's something that often gets lost in these stories of adolescence is, as sort of the ripple effect of that like when you fall in love and you get so focused on someone else and then you have that friend that's just like constantly nagging your relationship what it's coming from is that feeling of losing your friend and not understanding why and i i, I thought that was something very subtle and really important because it really speaks to the dynamic between these friends and their relationship considering what they're up against needs to be rock solid and instead it's kind of crumbling you already alluded to um shakespeare Mm -hmm. basically this sort of felt like a mirroring again of, of romeo and juliet with the you know the star-crossed lovers like basically sort of causing problems around them with their lack of interest and also the jealousy that sparked in some of their compadres mm -hmm. and, and so th that looked pretty similar there you also find out that like elaine has a certain way of handling keithbert where yes, like, yes. normally he'd be able to like joke him into a good mood and, and bring him back from the brink. And and this is where we start to realize too that um so Keithbert has a the gallows humor, of course. We already know that. Mm -hmm. But we also know that like now with this sort of view that he has a dark side that he really like falls into brooding and and maybe the group as a whole is what kept him above water. Mm -hmm. And now he's so disturbed and upset about the situation that they're in that uh, even Elaine can't really pull him back from the brink of this sort of like depression slash anger that mm -hmm. he's, he's sort of brooding on. Yeah. Def I mean, I think the other thing we see with Elaine is, and I love how it really differentiates him and Cuthbert is that his approach to the situation is also, a, you know, he's afraid, but he also has more understanding. You know, he has a more metaphysical or spiritual sort of, turn of mind because of you know having the touch or whatever and so he sees this not just so much as the inner dynamics between them but he suspects that there is some degree of ka involved with this and points out to them you know that this is not just 
the shallow version of Ka, like people use it as an excuse for whatever, but that it may actually have a practical reason why this is important, that Susan may have a role to play if this is Ka, that they have a sh- they potentially have a shared destiny. And and so if that's the case, then they need to have more patience. And I, I, I don't know, I just thought it really kind of showed you that we've heard that Elaine is a lot deeper than you think would normally think, but I seeing it in practice, I was like, oh, this, he is a very deep kid. Yeah, and the same thing with Keeper. Like I, at first, I just kind of like put him off as the the funny kid, right? But like with this sort of dark turn mm-hmm. and the realization that Elaine kind of like has to be there as a support for yeah. him mm-hmm. and bring him back. Like that that was a that really wasn't what I had in my mind for him originally. And when that's revealed, it's kind of like whoa. Now you're three dimensional, right? Right. You get a lot of depth of these characters out of this very short section. I agree. The other thing I wanted to, before we move on, talk about is there's a really great metaphor in this section where, when Cuthbert is, you know, complaining about what's happening with Roland, he refers to him as being a gun that has been thrown in the river. River. Yes. Yes. Which is, you know, I think on one hand, kind of a callback to. What had happened with the, you know, the shells getting ruined back on the beach. There's a lot of calls back in the section, I think, to previous books. He says he's like a revolver cast into water. And who knows if it'll ever work again, even if it's dried and fished out or fished out and dried. And it works on a couple of levels because, you know, Roland is a gunslinger. Mm -hmm. Roland is essentially his gun. If you think about the creed, right? That I don't shoot with my gun. I shoot with my mind. And, And so he's talking about how when his mind is broken... With, by this romance with Susan, he is essentially a broken tool. And so I thought that metaphor was really solid because it works on so many levels, but it also kind of speaks to their culture, right? As gunslingers, you, you can kind of see how that would be maybe a saying that, that they use. I, don't know, I just thought it was a really, really great metaphor. The other thing that the section does is sort of lay out exactly why they're so... It reminds you that they're kids, that they're in the, over their heads, that they weren't expecting to be in this situation, that like initially they were sent here because it was supposed to be safe. And now here they are trapped in this situation with this big conspiracy going on, but they still weren't freaking out because they had this ace in the hole that was Roland, who like they, they describe as having reached mythical proportions in their mind because he's the youngest person to ever become a gunslinger and the best court, this person they had all this admiration for and fear of with a hawk. And now this one thing that kept them from totally panicking is now a broken tool. So, you know, we've kind of been hearing about how there's these really high stakes, but largely the way that Roland and Susan, who have been talking about it, is framed uh, is about her being caught, not necessarily what it actually means for Elaine and Cuthbert, who are getting lost in the mix. And so I'm glad that we got this moment where it was sort of really illustrated to us readers where they're at and how they have the skin in the game. And yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Well, it's weird because Roland doesn't, well, I mean, I guess it's not weird, but he's not really thinking about his compadres. Even when he internally is thinking about what could happen, he's like the best case scenario is that we could be banished, you know? Mm -hmm. And if that's the best case scenario, like what's the worst? And he's worried about Susan and himself, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) what about the, what about his friends? You know, they're, they're there with him because he picked them and brought them along, mm-hmm. right? You know, like it, it's basically his fault, and now he's derelicting them to go after this girl. And then on top of that, Roland is the guy that like first to get a girlfriend, first to you know like uh, become a gunslinger, first to to uh, uh, kind of be the leader of the group. Like he's 
he's the kid you look up to. Right. And and now you're seeing him like stumble and fall almost in like an Eddie sort of fashion, which is um, I, I think what Stephen King was going for. Mm-hmm. But I, I just wanted to really quickly go back to that Rook skull missing. We don't yeah, know yeah. why or how or somebody took it or what it is. But I did, you know, he talks about it being an omen. And to me, the symbolization symbolism was kind of like the, they're basically missing one of the key pieces in their, you know, oh. game of castles. So the missing yeah. Rook is kind of like the missing Roland. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I I didn't pick that up, but that makes sense. Yeah. I, I I know Stephen King really wanted us to think about that Rook skull missing, mm. but I was I'm not sure I know why. I <laughs> felt like, like it was a little breadcrumb dropped, and we're gonna find out where the the, the Rook skull is. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I forgot to mention is that also, uh, and this is earlier on, but their signaling method when they change is now. Um, hanging stuff in the window and Mm -hmm. leaving um was it an overturned rock yeah it was like a rock yeah um, into the property mm -hmm. so their relationship is evolving enough uh susan and uh roland that now they're coming up with new communication methods and it sort of shows that they're just they're doing this all the time Mm -hmm. pretty regularly and that definitely means that the rest of the gang is left to do like the counting and all the boring stuff yeah which by the way that's the other thing that they talked about is is that kuthrit maybe has a plan on how to deal with the situation at the drop yeah yeah and if he could ever get rolling and sit around long enough to like plan it out with it so then we cut back to um the travelers in and we see that uh basically jonas and reimer are playing like a card game and I'm not 100% sure what card game this is. It's Patience. I, I think it's some sort of, like, mixture of poker and solitaire, maybe? Okay, well, so I wanted to ask you about this, because, like, there's a point where he mentions, like, all the rooks being on the table. And I was, uh, you're usually better at researching this stuff than so I am. I so I did try to research this. So they're the chancellors, which, of course, Reimer is a chancellor. So, like, there's a your link right there and then the four the four chancellors were peter mark luke and paul i want to say which are not i mean they're all apostles but they're not like the gospels i was trying to figure it out i was wait wait, is this um the beatles no i had that thought too because the first one that comes out is paul and i was like oh god is this another beatles reference but no they're definitely apostles and i mean i think you can there's some of it that's just sort of world culture, which is that there is like the good man, Jesus, and there is some Christianity in the, some version of Christianity in this world. Okay. And then, but then there's also this idea, and I, obviously we're getting ahead where, you know, we find out Reimer is a, you know, a, a believer in the cause. So he would be kind of, you could say he was an apostle, uh, Farsa. Okay. So, but it kind of ends with him being like all the, you know, all of the chancellors are showing I'm going to win this hand. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because it's like, I know this is important, but I don't know why. Right. I couldn't find, I mean, other than them being apostles, I couldn't find any stories that were like, this is why these were the four selected. Because it doesn't, it doesn't make as much sense as if it were just, the, you know, the four gospels. Mm-hmm. It's not. They're just apostles. So I don't know. I don't really know. So I, I do want to circle back before I um, start to set the scene here and, and just point out that Stephen King made this like kind of cool statement mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of this chapter about um, 
about how kids think that parents mm-hmm. are put together and know what's going on. Yeah. But it basically alludes to the fact that your faith in someone else knowing what's going on is is uh, you not knowing what's going on. Right, <laughs> right. Them also maybe not leading you properly or to, to where you're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And not all adults are built the same, right? Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was really fun. And then and the reason I wanted to bring that up first before we go back to the card game is because we sort of talked about it at the beginning with the, the scene setting of Hambry. Mm-hmm. But that scene setting is important because we want to make sure and underline the fact that what we find out here is that Jonas and Reimer believe that they the kids were sent out to be put out of the way to be in a safe spot not realizing that there was a conspiracy going on here. Right. Which which means that, like, they weren't really set up to handle this sort no. of level of of action. No, 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 no. And, and their family never would have sent them there had they had any idea of what was really happening here. And the problem is, is Roland is not telling them as far as we know. He's just yeah. saying nothing to report, nothing to report. Yeah, and so... Anyway, they're playing cards. They're playing this uh, this game that we're not 100% sure of. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, DePape and Reynolds like are nervously wanting to tell them that they should go check out the barquet and see what the boys are up to. Right. Um, and uh, basically, we also find out that Reimer is in really kind of in charge of the group. Mm-hmm. And in charge of the mission. And mm-hmm. that's funny because it even sounds like it was sort of a surprise yeah. um, to the rest of the guys. They thought that they were sort of working for Thorin. But really, Thorin is just there to collect some money while they do whatever they're doing. And right. he doesn't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. And there's a funny bit where they like basically describe Thorin as an old man uh, who's going to have a heart attack the first time he sleeps with Susan <laughs> yeah. and die. And then that's the last they'll have to deal with him. It's such an and- ugly like portrait of him just like sitting around jerking it all day. <laughs> oh, he's so gross. Which leads into our discussion about the stand eventually. <laughs> right. right. Oh. Um, so they're playing this card game. Uh, the, the two coffin hunters like want him to check it out and he kind of shrugs them off and tells them to go away. Uh, They apparently are going to head back up to their brothel upstairs and continue on with whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. And as Jonas and Reimer are hanging out there, they kind of unravel the story of what they think the boys are up to. They alluded to the fact that they may have guns um, and that they're most likely either apprentices or not 100% gunslingers. Mm-hmm. We do also see that they, they sort of have a feel for Roland as being more than the other two boys. Right. And that feeling is, well, as we know, is correct. Right. Um, and, and then finally, we we get the discussion and they decide, okay, I'll go check it out, but I'm not taking um the other two with me because they're just a bunch of bumbling idiots Mm -hmm. and the boys are gone most middle of the daytime so it'd be a good chance for me to pop in and see what they're they're up to and the description of like what they'll find out there is like stiff sheets and (laughs) stinky socks and like maybe some guns hidden underneath there yeah and the stiff sheets like um rachel and i were kind of discussing it before we started the the show Mm -hmm. it's like he he makes a statement where he's like they were taught not to go find sheep, and mm. so they'll have stiff sheets. And 
I wanted to throw it to you, Rachel, because this I didn't get that he was talking about himself as being I mean, like a, a sheeper, but I don't but know it's... that he means to put himself on blast in that way, but it is quite the um, zoological self-own. Like, I mean, because the implication by disdaining the fact that they're like jerking off instead of having sex with sheep is that he has sex with sheep. <laughs> I don't know. That Jonas. one kind of slid completely past me. So, um, slid. Fair, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, enough sheep references. So, um, basically, they, they decide, okay, they're going to go out there and, and check it out. And we also get the feeling that if they can get to uh, Reaping Moon, then all their problems will be over anyway, mm-hmm. which is sort of like a dark cloud lingering on the horizon. What's coming that's so powerful that that's going to happen. Right. We also find out like a little bit of the inspiration for each of these characters, uh, Jonas and Reimer as to what they actually believe about what yeah. they're up to. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is it's more of a greed thing. And the other ones because he, he's part of the cause. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, we, we finally get a little peek behind the curtains, you know, like we, Roland and the gang don't know what's happening. And up until this point, we really hadn't known anything either. And while there's still definitely some holes, we do get some information confirmed. Like, we suspected that Reimer was kind of the one pulling the strings. Now we know that for sure. We also know a little bit more about Reimer in terms of what motivates him, right? Like, whereas Thorin just wants some money and is happy to turn a blind eye, Reimer wants people to believe he's a true believer, much in the way that he pretended to be a true believer at the Thorin dinner. But really, like, Jonah sees through him and sees that what he's really after is power. And he sees this as a way to get to power. So so that's helpful. The other thing is, is they drop some hints about that. We know that we've heard talk of war machines, but now mm-hmm. we know that there are also robots. Yeah, I, I heard the robot drop and I was like, what? What? Yeah, that no wonder Gilead is going to fall. If they have tanks and robots, it's a wrap, right? So so that was really interesting. But I also really liked this this interaction between Reimer and um and Jonas, where you kind of see where he's like, listen, I'm not gonna betray you because you're my employer, but I'm not your dear anything. <laughs> and there is like definitely mutual disdain between the two men, but who like if he's paying this mercenary, this mercenary is gonna come through. Yeah. So I mean, I do think even though we still don't know all the moving parts, we do get these hints. So we know yep. we're we're heading into the end game, and that the stuff with Thorin and Susan is coming to a head, and the stuff with the, Roland and Susan is coming to a head, and now we know that whatever the big coffin hunters and Reimer have cooking is happening at Reap. So. It just kind of resets our timeline so we can see how they're all going to converge in the whatever climax. It just, I don't it, remember robots, do you? I don't remember the end of this book at all. Okay. okay. I read like, this book. When the robot like, dropped, like, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's like, what? Yeah. Like, I almost like record scratch for a second. Like, I, I read this in like 1995 when it came out I, oh. <laughs> or, or whenever it came. I don't know if 95, that's probably not right. It must have been like 98 or something. But like I don't remember I hardly remember anything about this book. Um like it's really all come as a surprise <laughs> as we've gone along. So yeah, I have no idea what's happening. And I'm kinda like keeping myself blind a little bit. I mean, I know some little spoilers here and there because they just come out as I'm researching and I'm gonna do my research, but mm-hmm. but I have no idea 
I haven't seen come across any spoilers yet for what's happening on the Coffin Hunter side, so it's all very much a black box. I'm I'm excited mm. to find out what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to know where the robots are. Yeah, I just thought that the mention of robots. I mean, because I get very excited anytime there's like North Central Positronic talk. So yep, like, yep. and this book has really not gone into any of that. And so when I heard robots, I was like, ooh, exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. There Again, we're getting the parallels between our big coffin hunters and the quartet that Elaine and and uh, Cuthbert are getting impatient and wanting to, to look at the drop and getting frustrated with their leader who's, like, not giving them all the information. And, the, and, and so, again, we're getting the parallels between the two groups. Roland thinks he kind of knows what's going on with Jonas and Jonas kind of thinks he knows what's going on with, with Roland. And in the case of Jonas, I mean, he's not a hundred percent right, but he's pretty close. We know what's at Barquet. So he thinks there's a helioscope. Well, there isn't, but there's pigeons. Same difference. He knows that there's guns. He suspects there's possibility that Roland is more than is more seasoned than the other two. The one good thing that comes out of this, because most of this is pretty foreboding and, and not a good look for our friends, but is that he still, despite everything that happened in the Barquet with the face-off, he there is some part of Jonas that is still underestimating Roland. You know, he keeps referring that, to them as babbies and as kids, and he's sure he could take him in a fair fight, and that remains to be seen, but... The point is, is he has a certain level of arrogance about Roland. And some of it might be just that he can't fathom that someone that young would be a gunslinger. But part of it could also just be that, you know, his pride was really hurt by what went down in the Barquet. And so he just kind of like can't admit to himself that, you know, Roland may be more seasoned than he, than he thinks. So that's one blind spot that we know he has that could work in our gunslinger's favor. Well, the other thing while we're on, on Jonas that I, I wanted to bring up is, like, he actually seems like he's better at reading than any of the other mm-hmm. Coffin Hunters. Because he's even able to see into, like, Ryan Reimer's intentions just oh, yeah. by, like, looking in the eye mm-hmm. and being like, ah, oh, you're one of those guys. You want to be a, you know, a, 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 baron. a mayor or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. be in charge of something. And it's like, well, you're the underling, but, like, you have the deep deep sight into what everybody is up to mm-hmm. and it just it points to the fact that he's really even though he's not the boss he's sort of the guy that's running the show right. am i wrong or no absolutely like reimer thinks he's the boss because he's putting the bill and and jonas is you know like he, he says he's never betrayed i mean he says he's never betrayed an employer for now we'll give him the benefit of the doubt that that's true but I, I think he's making it clear in this conversation, like who who who's the big swinging dick at this table? And it ain't <laughs> Reimer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You may be paying for it, but you're not doing it. Sort of yeah. Thing. And like, let's face it. I, 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 you, there's no making me do what I don't want to do. Like if it really comes down to it between the two of us, like for now, you're paying my bills. I'm going to do this because it's what I want to do. But don't don't get chesty with me. You're gonna have to do a few more push-ups before you come talk to me like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we leave those guys stewing around the table, and we like jump over to Rhea's cottage. Um, this is where actually we find out a little bit more about the ball that you and I have been mm. uh, pontificating about. Yes, turns out that the only way she can use it is if she's calm, 
And apparently uh, a lot of her hocus pocus words that she's using are really a method for uh, stilling her will. Yeah. And like bringing herself to a calm state to project it onto this ball. She's so angry missing out on like what happened to Susan, finding out that Susan failed to chop her hair off. Mm-hmm. Um, and she even, I, I should have done this and I forgot. Um, she uses a weird term for hair and Scurf. I almost threw in our old, um, Midworld translation. Mm-hmm. Did you look but, up what it was? Uh, no, I didn't. Okay, That's so I, I looked it up because it. I was like, I want to know because we had had that conversation about what we think she was really trying to do. So scurf is gross, but I do it, think it confirms that it was cutting off her hair. Basically, okay. like scurf is the dry, flaky skin that you get when you have like a fungal infection on your scalp. It's like big, big dandruff. It's called scurf. Uh, so is this um cr- cradle cap yeah essentially okay. yeah that's what the little f- the flakes that come off of cradle cap is scurf freaking <laughs> gross you're like everything she says is the grossest version you didn't even know could be a thing yeah i've never heard of scurf so uh, cr- cradle caps my analog to that but oh okay <laughs> so then that does that is a good point so then basically we that means that she wasn't planning on disfiguring herself it was just the hair yeah it was just the hair just okay. to like wound her pride uh mm-hmm. all right and, and so Rhea's like super angry with her and like yeah even sort of plotting to possibly try and kill susan yeah and she goes out and like sort of screams at the moon, I guess. Yeah. And then the other one, um, and this is just kind of mentioned in passing, but like her cat now is kind of afraid of his favorite spot by the fire. Cause she, right. obviously she threw him in the fire the other day and mm-hmm. like he's nervous about it. So he's hanging out on the wood pile instead, but she calls him a warlock. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you, do you think that like he was a person at one time and Rhea turned the cat into a, I mean, um, it hadn't or... occurred to me, but I don't know, maybe. Like, I thought of him as more being a familiar, so, like, there is a magical element to him. But I guess he could have been a person that got, to, like, are you thinking of um the one from Sabrina? <laughs> Wasn't yeah, he? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Salem? <laughs> yeah, and so uh, Rhea's kind of like, and the, this whole time, and I've kind of forgot to mention this, but we are getting, like, a picture of the moon, mm-hmm. and then our subjects as they're reacting and then back to the moon and then back to them. And the moon like is sort of hanging over large on this. And before in one of the previous podcasts, Rachel, you mentioned that the, the position of the moon and the name for each of the moons that are out before harvest was sort of playing a part here. Mm -hmm. And, And I wanted to ask you about that again, because as we went through this section, like we have the moon and then we have Rhea, we have the moon and we have the gang at the bar. K. we, we have the yeah. moon and we have everybody harvesting and getting ready for the solstice. Yep. Uh, what do you think the moon is trying to say here with uh, Rhea's frustration? Hmm. Hmm. As far as the moon, I think it's too early to say exactly what it means. Cause a lot of times I feel like I get the significance of the moon at the end or towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I have been thinking about it a little bit because you know, the huntress moon. So yeah. we, we start off essentially with that story, not at the very beginning, but pretty early, I guess pretty much right at the beginning about them hunting the snakes. Um, but oh, I, and then that like kind of cross references back to the moon is they're they're on the hunt and on the prowl. 
Right. And, but I mean, I also think you have to you think of that in terms of like hunter and prey. And I feel like everybody, everybody in this book thinks they're the hunter. Nobody thinks they're the prey. Ah, you know, yeah, that's true. Because Roland and the gang think they're kind of the ones who are like out hunting. And then the big coffin hunters believe they're hunting them. There's even some reference to, you know, maybe we could just like sneak off and shoot them. Right. Exactly. And so I think that I think we'll have a fuller picture as we go forward. But that was my first instinct is like, if you're thinking about a hunt. Yeah. 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 So it's back to the crystal ball uh, before I forget. Um, so Rhea can't use it without uh, her concentration and her temper not being out of control. Right. And, and so the banishment that happened earlier, I wanted to also ask you about that. So do you think that, the banishing was really just Rhea getting mad when she's realized that she's been caught doing the thing. I think she is not accustomed to not getting her way. Ah, okay. I think she is furious. She's such an angry, bitter person. I I think she is like the affront that she did not get her way when she wanted this revenge. Uh, she wanted she wanted to humiliate Susan so badly that she's furious that she didn't get to do it. And in, and what she is ultimately doing is preventing herself from being able to look at this crystal. And and I think it comes back to this metaphor that we're having about addiction. In the case of Rhea, she's addicted to this crystal ball and the way that she's not being able to, you know, in the way that she's processing not being able to have access to the the source of her addiction, she is mm-hmm. also projecting, kind of like Cuthbert, where he's like, "I hate Susan a little bit." She's furious and hates Susan because she's not able to look into this crystal ball. Ah, uh, that makes so, sense. So, yeah, I also thought there was a really creepy detail in here where she goes and she screams at the moon because she, what she wants to do is scream at the crystal ball, but she's afraid of offending something that might be lurking inside. And I was like, "Ooh." That is so creepy. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, so we already know that like Rhea is being somewhat consumed yes. by this ball, like, yes. and not just in like a metaphorical sense. Like, yeah, it's it's eating her. Yeah, yeah, it's like eating her life force. So, but I mean, I didn't know if it was like a thin. We talked about how like the thinny consumes things, and the thinny mm-hmm. like reached out and ate that bird. But does it have? Is did it, they just bottle it, a thinny it have and a stick mon- it in a glass ball and then I like that's it? But I, I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is, does it have a mind? Does it have a, is it doing these things consciously? Or is it just something that it's just sort of a mindless blob that eats, you know? And it, and it is the crystal ball kind of this mindless thing that eats? Or is it, or is there an intelligence behind it? of course, right? What's that? It's the Tommyknockers, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It would be almost pathetic, Mm-hmm. with this like impotent rage and the punching of the the door and just like throwing this fit about not getting her way and being so cruel about it if it weren't for the fact that she now has going to take all of her considerable abilities and direct them at susan she she does not take not getting her way well at all like i thought i was mad about not getting my way <laughs> <laughs> any other thoughts on this section uh no, I, you know I actually normally I'm not a huge character development guy. Right. Well, <laughs> what did that. you think of this chapter? I, I thought overall it was, it was good. Like I, I liked a lot more of this than I thought I would. Yeah. Um, 
usually I'm kind of like, hurry up and get to the action. Right. But a lot of this was actually well-formed and, and mm-hmm. made me happy to reminisce. Yeah. Especially that little uh, story about New York and, and uh, us with covered wagons in Nebraska. Like, <laughs> yeah. That really, that really hit home yeah. for me when, when they're describing like, oh, yeah, the people in Hambury live this like pastoral lifestyle that's safe and like wholesome and all that business I, I like that yeah what about you Rachel I mean I loved this this feels like the beginning I mean we're in the final we're in, heading into the final act right and mm. I feel like and I know I've said this before like we're building but I felt like we kind of resolved a little bit at the end of the last chapter like it was all building towards Susan and Roland doing the deed so now we're back in the building phase like we're heading into the end and things are coming together and it feels like this total like slow burn like we're just moving from character to character as we're building towards something and i love that feeling um i think that there was really great character stuff in this like i'm very interested in cuthbert and elaine i i'm finding myself interestingly this time through wishing that the next book was going to be a sequel to this book (laughs) <laughs> as opposed to circling back to current day, you know, a hunt for the tower. Like I found myself getting very invested in young Roland and the, his original content. And obviously I know it's going to go really dark places ultimately. And I'll be bummed if they, if I did listen to this, you know, if there were sequels to this, but I I really, really am finding myself getting super invested in, in Cuthbert, Elaine and Susan and young Roland. And I, I I think that just tells you right there that this book is successful in what it's doing. So, well, you're you're absolutely right. Like I I, I wouldn't even have minded if this was divorced from the series together mm-hmm. uh, altogether and just right. its own thing. Right? And this I mean, is... that was not my experience the first time through these books. No, you're just like, "What? Come on, hurry up." Yeah, like, this has been a really really welcome surprise how much I really am loving this book. Um but yeah, like I, I, I dread the end, but I'm also excited to see where it goes, if that makes any sense. And I thought a big part of it was like, to me, the least interesting part of this was the part where they were in Kansas. Like, I mm-hmm. loved the going back to Hambry and like being re-centered in this world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought this section was, even though nothing really happened, was really interesting because it finally told, I, I feel like I finally got some answers. Like I got inside the the heads of some people and learn some new things so yeah i really like this chapter quite a bit and robots and robots dude he dropped a robot in the middle of this it reminds (laughs) us that like because i do think that there is some degree of this that's just like straight up western Mm -hmm. um and so it's that reminder of the weird aspect of like oh right right of course there are robots (laughs) of course there are robots (laughs) yeah yeah so i loved it okay okay So for those of you at home who are playing along, we are going to be covering Wizard and Glass Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 2, The Girl at the Window. So in two weeks, we'll cover that. I'm looking at this. I think this is... DJ, it'll be easy for you. Could you have made these a little bit easier? I know. The names are wild, man. Why do they have to be all over the place? Come on, man. I know. All right, I didn't have any connections to the Stephen King universe this time, at least not that I saw. If I missed anything, please de- definitely let us know. Um, and we did not get any listener emails this time, but if you did have something you wanted to get in touch with us about, you always can on the Facebook group, which you should join if you haven't become a member yet, or you can drop us a line at castofcaught@zombiegirls.com. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes, and we will read it on the show. Okay, 
But before that, now we still have some listener feedback from the Facebook group and we have our thoughts on the stand. I think we knock out the stand and then close with the listener feedback. Sound good? Yeah, sounds great. All right, awesome. So as promised, we watched the first episode of The Stand, the new version that premiered over the weekend, I want to say, on the 17th, I think, on CBS All Access. So uh, because obviously this book has, it like connects to the Dark Tower universe, like directly in this book, we thought we would definitely want to cover it and kind of give our thoughts. Now, we're not going to do a super in-depth review. Maybe at the end, we'll like really, really get into it. But I kind of wanted to run through the pilot or the first episode and get your thoughts on it and kind of like how we felt about it. So for those of you who have not watched the episode, this will have first episode spoilers. And potentially book spoilers. I don't know what DJ's going to say because you just never know <laughs> what DJ's going to say. So if you are spoiler adverse, dip out. I totally understand. But if you either read the book or don't care and have watched the episode, I stick around. We're going to talk about it. All right. So, DJ, right off the bat, there is a major shift from the book, and that is in the timeline. I don't know if you remember how the original yeah, one started. so this bounces around a lot more yeah. in the timeline than I'm used to or remember. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like, like, we start off, like, already with, like, dead bodies and people in Boulder. And yeah. Boulder's, like, way out there in it's the It's, like, halfway through the, the book, stand. yeah. Right? So, like, it's kind of weird, that, and also... um kind of move or tv-esque that they did this because they want to like speed things along and having an action scene like that far in the future of them cleaning dead bodies mm -hmm. out of the church i guess does that yeah i mean i definitely they're definitely restructuring the, the book right because they don't want to just the book just sort of like takes all this time introducing you to characters like obviously mm -hmm. i think it first starts with the outbreak and then it just spends a lot of time like this character now this character now this character now this character and and so there isn't i could see well, how for the sake of forward momentum kind of doing sort of the lost format where you introduce the character as they are at a per, you know post um pandemic and then backtracking and telling their story mm -hmm. i mean i think i think it's an, definitely an interesting take on it and also that this first episode really decided to focus on very few main characters the, the first ones we're introduced to are franny and harold and mm. obviously Franny is a, a pregnant girl who was burying her father and Harold is the creepy kid she used to babysit that is like super obsessed with her. Wait, is she she's not pregnant yet? Yeah, she's pregnant. Okay. Um then I'm confused cuz I thought with her with her father like I thought it was implied that she's pregnant with uh, what's his name's baby at mm. the end. I mean, it's only 5 months later. Um, but yeah no i think she's she's already pregnant because there's like the thing where he, she's like i gotta tell you something dad next time we, oh. you know and then he dies okay i did not pick up on that yeah i think she's already pregnant so the owen characters changed a little bit too in this version they've kind of updated him to sort of like a incel school shooter type yeah yeah like reads uh his short story quote unquote and like gets kicked out of school yeah so what okay so we're we're all over the place. <laughs> no, no, no. I think we're we're still like in the first couple of scenes here. So I kind of wanted to get your take on these changes, but also like, what do you think about these characters? 
So I wanted to ask you first, like, was she his babysitter in the original stand? I couldn't remember. I don't remember either. I really okay. don't remember. Because I was like, I don't remember that being a thing, but maybe it is. But it does definitely tell us, like, there's a, a big age gap between these two. Mm-hmm. And he's a he's cr- like the first scene we get him is like he's creeping on her by staring through yeah. a hole in their fence. Yeah. And gets beat up and like everybody doesn't like this kid right and and then from her perspective she's kind of um maybe a musician or something because like Mm. they allude to her doing a show but the show didn't go very well no it's a shower oh a shower it's her it's his sister's wedding shower okay and that okay now you're putting things together so that explains why she's like this was an awful baby shower and she's wearing like the skirt and like has two pieces of kleenex shoved up her nose yes so this it was actually the sister's wedding shower okay and so when she her dad's like how was the shower she's like it wasn't really much of anything because everybody has what you have and then when we cut to harold getting home the sister that that franny is friends with is the one that's sick in bed okay so i am really bad when i watched that i was like why is he asking her about a shower? Like, <laughs> did she wash herself or something? Like, and I also didn't pick up on the the no. baby thing. Yeah. Like, let me tell you. And I, for some reason, I thought in the book, her dad was a little more important. Uh, probably. I mean, that's the thing is these are very abbreviated. Um, yeah. So like introduction. He's almost just like a really quick vignette. And mm-hmm. even like the mention of her brother, I thought that was more predominant. I mean, we'll see. Maybe it'll come out more as we go. But, yeah, they did not spend any time on it. I do think that the fact that they took the time to, like, show you his picture in in the photo maybe alludes to we're going to find out more about him. Yes. But overall, like, for some reason, I was just like, where's Molly Ringwald at? (laughs) I mean, I do love me some Molly Ringwald. But but what did you what did you think of? uh, So Harold has changed a bit. He, like, for one thing, we get to actually see the bullying he experiences instead of him just talking about it. And in the book, he's kind of like this sort of flat, sort of fat, schlubby kind of dude. Whereas now he's, like, much more skinny and wiry and, like. And, like I said, like, someone who's spending some time on some some dark Reddit boards. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I I liked it. Um, So, as a character, I thought he did, did well um especially like and this is later on but there's a scene where he like sits there typing up a plan for what they're gonna do yeah and then like rehearsing uh what how he's gonna like talk her into coming with yeah and then he puts on the worst choice of shoes and these like slacks yeah and like almost like that kid that doesn't know what dress up is and then like dresses up right you end up looking like a a weird like 60 year old carpet salesman yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it's these little subtle touches that really are pretty good character indicators. Like you said, like, but the weirdness. But rocking of... a ruckus. Like, I love the Honda ruckus. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> hop on this ruckus and drive around. Yeah, I actually really like where they took. To me, he was kind of the standout of this yes, episode. Definitely. Because he is, un... like, in turn, in moments, you almost feel for him. But then the facade will slip a little. And you're like, oh, he's no, the, horrifying. He's a, he's a really scary sociopath. Like, in the moments where you see him trying to basically put on the mask of behaving human mm-hmm. and i i thought that was a really great touch like i remember the original one i the guy seemed like a sleaze but he didn't seem scary and he well, there's a, so there's a point here where he's brushing his teeth uh-huh. and the guy on the radio is like i'm not gonna let that get me yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna end it and like you hear him shoot himself and it doesn't even 
phase him. He just kind of yeah, is like, like huh, nah, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even when he first talks to Franny and she's burying her, her father, like he says all these things that show that he's like got a total sensitivity chip missing. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think that's good writing, and I think the the actor himself is doing a really great job. Uh, again, getting ahead of ourselves, where he's practicing the like Tom Cruise smile in the mirror. Yeah. Oh. Ooh. Ooh, he does ooh. some really like he was sort of like dark universe Jim Carrey a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. So from here we cut to we're introduced to Stu, who is currently being held in an army research facility. And he, we find out he was one of the first people who encountered Campion, who is the guy who basically spread the plague and when he's dying of Captain Trips. And we, so we learn a little bit about how the plague started, as well as that Stu is the only immune person that at this point in the story that the military knows exists. So Stu's kind of our hero of the story in a lot of ways. What, how did you feel about the, the character here? Uh, so... Uh... I uh, I was expecting some dead guinea pigs and I didn't get them. Oh, sorry. We got live guinea pigs. That's got to be almost. Yeah, I mean they're good. they're cute. I, I don't want any guinea pigs to die. But no, uh, I I liked his interaction with the doctor. I really liked the doctor. And the doctor, like out of the two characters, I thought he was definitely the shining. Uh huh. Yeah. So... Shining star. Like he definitely overshadowed the stew. Like who is supposed to be like a very important character, mm-hmm. and just does not seem like he's hitting the mark as much as the doctor was just right on everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a change from the book as well, because in the book, the doctor is like very sees him as a lab rat, and yep. so I think the introduction of this friend as a personalized character... like friend almost yes so i i I mean i like that actor his name's hamish linkletter and i really really like him in general like he always kind of has that affable charm and dark humor to him so it worked really well for me because it gives some exposition of what's going on away in a way that was entertaining but also when he gets sick you're like fuck you you feel it with Stu, like, and that's something throughout this. This every time you would see a symptom arise in someone, like my stomach just completely dropped. But in particular with him, because I I couldn't remember if he lived or died or what happened, because it's been many many years since I originally read the stand. But I found myself like hoping, like, is there any chance this guy's gonna make it? Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> yeah, and even in, like the Stephen, or I mean, the Stephen King, the 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 show, like points him out as heroic when he like saves him yeah. at the end like he takes a bullet right and, and hands him a scalpel to like give him a weapon of some kind right right i mean he seems like a genuinely good dude in a in a kind of in a in a world that is probably not going to have a ton of genuinely good dudes i i also think the problem with Stu is he's just like kind of your prototypical heroic sort of character he's like a, a former veteran salt of the earth guy worked on the rigs had like a nice wife that passed away i mean there's all kind of good but also sort of boring (laughs) you know characteristics to Stu. so (laughs) so i mean when you bring in this sort of charismatic doctor of course he's gonna overshine him i do love james marsden i love james marsden so i'm hoping he gets more to do than he got to do in this chapter or in this episode (laughs) after that franny's dad dies and um while she she like the power goes out and she goes to sleep and she has her first dream about Mother Abigail. So we get our first vision of Mother Abigail and afterwards she tries to commit suicide and Harold shows up in time to save her and lay out his plan to go to uh, Atlanta. So 
I feel like we get some more great work from Owen Teague here. What else did you, did you have any thoughts about the vision or anything here? I, I mean, the corn vision's like a pretty staple yeah. of the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, Whoopi Goldberg as Mother Abigail just isn't as cool as the original Mother Abigail. Gotcha. Um, at, at least that was my. I mean, I, we haven't seen much, so like, but I wasn't blown away. <laughs> but no, like I, I she's fine <laughs> um, i always love her I, don't, I don't know maybe she'll just like really shine and i don't know what i'm talking about i mean but... it's early but I, like like Stu, i don't feel like she had really much to do here so she had to show yeah. up and be a little mysterious and she did that yeah i, I guess I, I don't know um but we get to see her we get the corn vision everybody has the corn vision except for harold um and that's you know obviously foreboding yeah <laughs> what's coming in the future yeah uh, yeah and then the the sad bit with the, her burying her father was like yeah. she sends harold away uh-huh but it's obvious that she could have used his help yeah but i mean would you want task? harold to be with you through like a really emotional thing i don't think so yeah, it's creeper. yeah. and then like harold has this moment where he um he finds a cop car that's crashed yeah and he like steals the gun yeah and then he notices this like old-timey typewriter Mm -hmm. and grabs it yep and starts typing up his plan and at first i was confused by that and then i remembered that his laptop got smashed (laughs) by himself like well i guess it got smashed before well so like when he got beat so the thing about harold that i i felt through this whole thing is that there was a chance that Harold could have gone not broken bad. Yeah. And yeah, he even makes a friend in this episode, but no. Yeah. It's like, it's, he teeters the whole time. Yeah. And finally, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but he like types up this like weird thing where it's like anger and hate and whatever. I don't normally like, I choose to embrace it. Yeah. I don't normally like a, a, a voiceover. But I really actually liked, I liked Harold's. I thought it was, it, I thought it was pretty great, especially what it leads into. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. And that, that statement where he's like, the world should change for me. Right? I mean, Whoa. the megalomania Whoa, of Harold is something and, to and behold. The other thing I wanted to underline, and this is kind of weird, but like when, so Harold gets beat up and his bike's busted and he has to like do the walk of shame all the way back. Mm-hmm. Um, his mom's sick and like doesn't care that he's hurt or anything, just wants to make sure he mows the lawn. His sister's like pouting in her bedroom and he walks to his bedroom after having this like upsetting moment with his broken laptop and like takes out a picture of, oh, yes. uh, of her and um him like on the beach and he folds himself out of it and then like just jerks off to it and yeah like oh this is he doesn't it's almost as though and some of the um peeping tomery like makes it feel like he doesn't even see her as a person but more of an object no absolutely that's true absolutely that's true that that makes his motivation for wanting her even sort of darker and Mm -hmm. weird Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's really too. So, eh. yeah, <sighs> yeah, he's he's really hitting all the creeper notes. He's making sure to hit them all. Um, okay, so Stu, so there's an outbreak. As we saw, there was a little bit of a sneeze incident that for well, it's just allergies. It's just allergies. Oh my god! As someone who's experiencing allergies right now during a pandemic, it was not a soothing scene. 
<laughs> so Stu gets moved to a more security secure facility. We meet Cobb, who is a dick. Um, and but eventually, or he has his own Mother Abigail dream, except for that it's interrupted by a wolf with red eyes. Ooh, spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, unfortunately, there's an outbreak even at this more secure facility. Our doctor that we love gets infected, and Cobb, who is a dick, comes and tries to kill Stu, but he manages to kill him instead. And uh, the general who is controlling this building allows him to leave his room and reads him some poem, reads him a poem. Yeah, that and part kills I thought himself. was like kind of funny. Like, not funny, haha, but funny, like, that's a weird choice of narration uh-huh. to like have him read this, like, sort of sadistic poem as he's like walking out of the building. <laughs> Right. I mean, I like. I, I feel like it definitely lent a, a, a feeling of uh, gravitas, gravitas, and like a grimness to the whole proceeding. Did you at all get like under Lud vibes from the building? I did. Yes. I did. Like when there was the lights, he's like, "Follow the lights." I was like, "Oh my god, this is totally Lud situation." Yep. Exactly. <laughs> and then, like, when you get to the general, and he's like in this command center, and he's like. I wasn't trying to kill you, man. Like, I don't even know who that guy is. <laughs> like, he's just some secret agent guy that I had to, like, accept onto our team because that's how it works. And right. I don't know the significance of what level of general you are. I think four star is, like... Is that, like, the top of the... I think that's the tippy top. But I could be wrong because okay. I also don't know for sure. Yeah, I don't know military structure that well. So he's a four star general, and it's mentioned multiple times, so it m- must be somewhat important. And you basically find out that this guy is like he has lost any advice from anybody else that is trying to sort of run this entire facility, this secret facility where I think even like the vice president was shepherded off to. And there's some. And so I reason I mentioned the uh, vice president in my fever dream is that there's a moment where she's like trying to bury her dad and then like walking through the house and in the background the president of the United States at that time is like denying any involvement in the government and uh, the administration in any of the faults of this disease being passed along and the, the uh, warehousing of like biological weapons. Yeah. (laughs) And you're just like, it's, it's such a parallel to like current day that you're just like ooh. yeah i mean that's something i definitely wanted to ask you about and at the end but i'll just ask you now like how the experience of watching this was in terms of our current situation do you feel like it increased the it was creepier and so it was better or was it harder to watch i think uh, so now that we've lived a year almost a year yeah in on and off lockdown yeah a sneeze really means more to me now than it right? ever did before. Yeah. Like in a grocery store, if you hear someone coughing, you're like, I'm out. Right? You, like, <laughs> right. you just like find the exit and leave. Yeah. Like Danny made me wash my hands like six times when I stopped at the convenience store and like somebody in the very back of the convenience store just started violently coughing. Ooh. And I was like, yeah, I don't feel good about this. No, I'm, I'm out. And yeah. so like, with that gravitas on everybody's shoulders or yeah. most people's shoulders, yeah. watching that scene where she comes in and she's like, it's just allergies. That means so much more it's to me so now than does. it probably would have before. Mm-hmm. Like before I'd have just been like, yeah, she's probably got it. But now you're like, <gasps> yeah, like it has a visceral kind of <laughs> feeling to it. It was, I, 
Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was saying, yeah, it was, it was, I, I vacillated between the two feelings. Like, on one hand, being like more compelled because it was scarier. And, you know, I'm always looking for things that give me the creeps, but also, like, there were moments where it felt a little too real and got a little uncomfortable. And I was like, I'm enjoying this less. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I can't, I, I feel both. I feel the answer is both. Well, there's a really fun, um, a Twitter moment that happened earlier this year when like somebody in, in the news was, was saying something like, I don't know how this would happen. And Stephen King, instead of like tweeting a long diatribe, he just basically copy and pasted a section from the stand <laughs> and, put it, and put it in his Twitter feed. And is like, this is how it happens. Yeah. And it's like the story of the salesman and like him being at the same diner. Yeah. It's like the, the opening of the stand. And then, like, yeah. Him being a particularly good salesman and like wandering on to so many places and they get exposed and they get exposed and they get exposed. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's extragram is in the book. I think the remade ver like the uncut version. Um, mm -hmm. There's like something about how the military like snuck infected people into china and russia to make sure that they also caught it <laughs> yeah like the military did that i'm just like oh it's so dark okay so just so the people who are at home screaming at us the highest rank in the military is a five-star general okay okay I so just... then really the significance is that like he's a lower ranking than the top to be running such a like crazy facility oh i think it's more that he's so high up that the assumption it's natural to assume that the guy would have been under his command um but when it's also possible that he wasn't uh okay yeah yeah so they he leaves the facility um the general shoots himself and the general's read of this poetry that came from his daughter yeah is kind of like played in the background as yeah. our character escapes this underground bunker and gets out with his life uh I don't think any of this is in the exact order that it happened in the book. I mean, I think um, it's, I mean, order, no. But I mean, that is kind of what happens with Stu. Yeah, but we don't, like, so I remember predominantly in the book the, like, tale of the um, outbreak and the escape from the military yes. base mm -hmm. being, like, A, number one. Yeah. And in this, like, they don't actually, they kind of, like, touch on it when we first see Stu and then we allude to the fact that like all of the uh, other like oil men or whatever that he works with are all um dead uh -huh. and 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 then we jump forward at the very end of the show to him actually um you know escaping with his family and like spreading the disease yeah. 17 hours of driving across country right yeah yeah right so yeah we close out well first of all we stop one one more stop before that is back in colorado where we see that harold is the we realize harold's the guy that was working on the body disposal at the beginning that he makes a friend and then he makes a conscious decision to stay full of hatred to embrace mm -hmm. his like he goes full sith essentially um and he fantasizes about killing Stu and he and franny because he's furious that she's now like apparently they're together we don't see i mean i'm guessing we're gonna get some flashbacks to explain how that came to be uh it's like it's if you watch lost like this is exactly the same like storytelling structure is it oh yeah uh, I, lost um was always too fragmented for me to follow along yeah so I just that didn't. they're totally following the lost book here in terms of the way and in some ways it's kind of good because it it allows you to get right to the meat of the action 
and then backtrack and be like, okay, but here's who this person is, as opposed to just like, like I said at the beginning, like, here's who this person is. Okay, now here's who this person is. All right, now here's who this person is. Um, it, it allows us to kind of like, and if for such a long story, it allows you to like truncate a lot of the character introduction, I think. Like I said, I've seen one episode, so we'll see if it works ultimately or not. Um, and then we have the 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 reverse of the Mother Abigail dream, where Harold meets the Man in Black. Yeah, hands him like a little like a medallion type of thing, or a, uh, I don't know, a little, like a rock that glows. Yeah, I don't actually remember from the book, so I don't know what that thing was, or if it's a new invention of the story. I don't know. Yeah, I I remember like the dream sequences, uh-huh. but I don't remember him being handed anything. Um, and I, that's one of the characters I wanted to ask you about because, like, mm-hmm. I want to know what they're gonna do with the my life for you guy. He's coming, is he? Oh yeah, he's been. Oh, he, nice. Ezra Miller is playing the bomb de bomb guy. Because I I love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, unf- I I wit in my in my my true heart, I wish they would bring back Matt Frewer. That would be oh, the yeah, best, yeah. but no. They're... Max Headroom, like, he just nailed it. He, right? I mean, so he plays the, like, cuckoo bananas, like, so well. That That is his wheelhouse, right? So, <laughs> but they're bringing in Ezra Miller, who I feel ambivalent about. But we'll see. Maybe he'll be good, and I'll be able to forget that he punched a lady on camera. We'll see. He um, punched? Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how I feel about him. <laughs> I may have conflicted feelings. But if he kills it, then maybe I'll be able to separate the art from the of violent woman abuser um so (laughs) (laughs) that's how you really feel great now we're gonna get another bad review on itunes like too many opinions (laughs) too many opinions on your podcast where you share your opinions um okay so yeah so then and then we like you said we finally loop back to the very beginning and see how the outbreak outbreak began and in another change from the book instead of there being just a technical error that led to the door being open allowing camping to escape the man in black did the it. man in black stuck his foot in the door although to be fair like it was sort of ominous that in the book wasn't it sort of painted a little bit that like randall flag had a little bit to do with everything um i i don't think that that's true i think no, no okay. but randall flags i think there's a part in this book where he gets his powers oh okay like he's like oh wow i can fly you know oh i for some reason i remember and i'm bad i could be wrong this is my recollection which could is suspect yeah mine too uh so i cannot say as canon but i for some reason i thought like he sort of already had his powers and was like subtly Mm -hmm. like enjoying the chaos I wish the book wasn't so damn long. I'd listen to it real quick. I know, right? <laughs> but that ain't going to happen in the next week. I don't have 80 hours to give you up. No, so I do not. Fine. No, I do not. All right. So, all right. What did you think overall of the first episode of The Stand? Now, this is a, a mini series that was always near and dear to our hearts. So it's dangerous to, like, revisit it. But So I want to know what you think. So overall, I thought it was really good. Um, the the change up makes it fresh and a fresh take that you can enjoy as mm-hmm. opposed to just being, like, a reprint yeah. of the original miniseries. Overall, it's it looks like they have a much bigger budget. Yeah, the movie looks great. Yeah, so like you have aerial shots when he's like riding his bike around. You have uh, lots of dead bodies that mm-hmm. are like well done. 
um the the scenes and and everything like even down into the bunker where they have like the tv playing forest in the background of like a little water mm-hmm. zen garden mm-hmm. it's just it looks really nice and you know when you see stephen king's work not completely destroyed yeah. and and also looks nice like that's a win yeah right yeah. i mean even if they get a little weird with the plot that's fine you know it's the adaptation not a, a true representation i i hope that it continues to be good yeah i'm interested to see what randall flag will be yeah. like as an uh, the actor that plays him me too um and i was telling rachel before the show like I watched this twice to try and pick up as much as I could, and I still managed to miss his face, <laughs> which apparently happened twice in this. Yeah. And I'm like, why are they just showing his boots? Show his face. Show his face. And then, like, apparently they did, and I glanced away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're all like, and I thought he was going to look like Jar Jar Binks. So, uh... <laughs> yeah. Enough. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like, I think I so far I'm pretty impressed with this. I There is something about those early TV movies and their low budget quality and and like subpar acting that have a nostalgic charm for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I can recognize like when I wa- go back and watch it and the acting is pretty bad. I, I still love it anyway because it is what it is. But this has much more of a like cinematic vibe in terms like but you said the tim curry but tim curry. well tim curry is great in everything i was talking about like literally everyone else <laughs> oh yeah, yeah like true. john ritter bless his heart r.i.p um <laughs> so so yeah so th- but this looks really good they have a budget this time around it is written and directed by josh boone who <laughs> directed fault of our stars and the new mutants so it's an mm. interesting take mm. um i know mm. that owen king writes a few of the episodes as well so that'll be interesting to see. But yeah, I thought it looked great. I really so far think I'm fine with this, the the way that they're mixing things up. Because like you said, I've already read the book and seen the original miniseries. So a fresh take is actually kind of welcome and freshens it up. I also was kind of relieved to not have to go blow by blow through the pandemic because of real life circumstances i feel like that would really undercut my enjoyment of it which is funny because it was like the thing that absolutely grabbed me when i was a kid and i watched the original like i was Mm. so chilled by it and titillated now i'd be like too real too real too real make it stop so so yeah so i i i like the new format i think the casting so far is pretty good the performances particularly of harold are strong so yeah i don't know I liked it quite a bit, and I'm excited to see where it goes. And like you, oh my god, please let us get a good Randall flag. I need yeah, something exactly. to like, wash. If, if you have like yeah. a lukewarm Randall flag, it's not going to be nearly as good. I, I want somebody to come in and just like Heath Ledger the shit out of that role. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, Matthew McConaughey is a good actor. Whether you like him or not, you watch True Detective, that man can act his fucking face off. His man in black was terrible. <laughs> and I need I need someone to wash the taste of that out of my mouth. I want and I feel like he, Randall Flagg is a meaty ass role that somebody could come in and just Joaquin Phoenix or Heath Ledger that shit, you know? Well, the dude that played it originally in the 1995 stand, mm-hmm. he was flamboyant. Yeah. And that flamboyancy like really played well to the character right. as like a showman, but also as a bad guy. Yeah. And I feel like the um the movie adaptation uh, where he's kind of like just dark and brooding. Yeah. Like it's missing the flair. Yeah. Uh, the, almost the like dancing on your gravestone <laughs> flair yeah. that you got from like 
the character itself. So I hope for that. And, and the nice thing about this series as a whole is like, we know that we're going to get a beginning, a middle and an end. Right. <laughs> Cause yeah. so many shows now you fall in love with them and then you find out like season three, they, they get rid of, you know, Sabrina or whatever. Yeah. And like, you don't get any more and like you're, you don't get any conclusion. At least with this, we know that they yeah. ordered it and it's done and we're going to get it. Viva la miniseries. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. So are you going to keep watching and want to keep talking about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Um, good. I, I'm in on this. Uh, and CBS has actually done a pretty good job with like Picard and, and yeah. some other shows. Yeah. So I feel like they can do this too. Yeah. Well. I mean, I feel like they already are kind of playing with that line of not having to worry about being on network tv i'm hoping they go even further with it we're gonna see butts oh my god so many butts, so many butts. <laughs> all right awesome okay well i any more thoughts before we wrap this up with just one last thing from our listeners no no that's that's pretty much it for me on the on the show <laughs> all right cool so as you know, we always put out a question to our listeners, and this time I went back to our dream casting. We got to actually spend some real time with Elaine and Cuthbert this chapter, so I wanted to know who you guys would like to see them be played by in our fantasy perfect version adaptation of these books. So, DJ, did you come up with anybody, or do you want me to come back to you? Um, well, I, I got to Google his name, but it's for some reason, you know the, the kid in... Um in super bad that draws all the wieners uh seth rogan no 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 i always make no, them no, up jonah hill uh, i kind of i kind of pictured him as 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 who as elaine okay okay jonah hill is elaine and then the dude that played um uh shoot he was he was in the comic book adaptation to movie where he like plays the guitar and rescues the girl in the movie yeah but scott it, pilgrim right yeah, Scott Pilgrim. Okay, there so the other kid in Superbad. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, actually, you're right. Both, so just like take the casting for Superbad and throw that on. Okay, so all right, that's cool. All right, so Jonah Hill and Michael Santa. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay, cool. So all right, I'm gonna save mine for the end because they kind of play off a few of the suggestions that people put out there. So, so the first person who answered was Sheldon, and he suggested. Obviously, I'm guessing aged to down. Chris Pratt for Cuthbert. Oh, oh um, yeah, I know. The worst about. Chris. Yes. So, okay. John says he pictures Devin Bostick as Cuthbert Allgood, which oh, I don't know who that person is. Let me look him up. Devin. What was it? Devin Austin? Devin Bostick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I recognize this guy. Okay. So he says he played he was in the 100 tv show as jasper yes that's where i know him okay from. that's actually really good casting because like jasper was very funny but also very broody at least in yeah, the he looks super manic just from even like the regular pictures of him yeah uh, th yeah i i agree i think that's I think, uh, pretty this is... perfect actually yep yep underlining that guy all right. He also suggested younger Jared Padalecki as a Lynn Jones when he first started playing Sam on Supernatural. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, he's kind of weird looking in Gilmore Girls. I mean, he's super young. Super, super young. I feel like he's a guy who grew into his face at an older age. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You could say that. Yeah. But I guess that would work for these guys because they're supposed to be like 
kind of young. Right. Because and... you got to think about what these people looked at like at 14, essentially. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah. Uh, fair. I'll, I'll consider that one. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. All right. So Jason says young River Phoenix as Cuthbert. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, River Phoenix can just play everything. Yeah, so. I know. I that's... loved him. That's that's fine. That one, like, yeah, you can't go wrong there. Yeah, it's just like, oh, River, uh, who's gonna River Phoenix as Susanna? Perfect. Yep, that'll work. That'd be. <laughs> <laughs> so Tim says, obviously, take a few decades. Oh, this is an interesting one. This is a twisty twist take that I'm kind of on board with. He says, okay. take a few decades off their ages, but I would love to see Keegan Michael Key as Cooper and Jordan Peele as Elaine, simply based on their personalities. Um, I should know these people. It's but Key I and Peele. Okay. Uh, yeah. You know what? Those guys, they look like fun dudes. Dude, did you never watch Key and Peele? No. That shit was hilarious. I, so the looking at the two together, I completely agree. And then one's got the wackier face and one seems more reserved. And like that is definitely the dichotomy of the two characters. Yeah. I mean, I also would just like anything they want to be in. I'm on board. <laughs> it's a done-ass deal. Yeah, I love them. I mean, that's a good one, though. Yeah, it's a really good one. And then he also suggested maybe early 80s, or sorry, late 80s, early 90s Christian Slater for Cuthbert. Yeah, Christian Slater is another one where I'm like, you can play whatever you want, man. <laughs> I know, I know, I um, know. And then the other person he suggested was someone who I am not familiar with. His name is James Wolvet, but it's J-A-I-M-Z, Wolvet. He says he was the Schofield kid from Unforgiven as Elaine. So I've seen Unforgiven because Matt made me watch it for the Splattercast. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, yeah. And and that's actually like a Western. So like, yeah. that kind of like. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I accept. Answer is acceptable. Okay. <laughs> um, and then finally, Craig says, spend the money and de-age Ryan Reynolds for Cuthbert. Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> I mean, I love Ryan Reynolds. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, he's one of those guys too, where it's like yeah, you can play whatever you want, man. You always seem to knock it out of the park, right? Yeah, I mean, he's very likable. I'm looking him up as a teenager. Oh my god, there are if you look if you Google the Ryan Reynolds teenager, he has the total like '90s split top loaf hair. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know what it was about that time, but like everybody had to have their hair split down the middle. I know. And it's like the little like mushroom shape that's like parted in the middle. Yep. I'm guilty of it too. Like I, <laughs> I had uh my hair was down to my shoulders and it like parted in the middle. Oh my God. I need to see photos immediately. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had the hairspray in the front so that it does the perfect wave on each side before it settles down Amazing. to the, Amazing. the downslope. I need to see this. <laughs> that is incredible okay and then finally my picks now i mean i kind of went a little sideways on mine so bear with me so i'll start with elaine who i think is a little more obvious so i picked him for it someone else someone has picked him but i picked him for the opposite character so i thought a young as elaine would be good because elaine is kind of like they say they describe him as not looking very smart and being kind of a taller, bigger kid, but also kind of sweet and lovable. And I could see how Chris Pratt could kind of, as when he was young, could pull that off. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. He could be in an Elaine. Yeah. He was like, I mean, he's not like, yeah, I think, I think I'm not a big Chris Pratt fan in general, but I do think he plays sort of the lovable dummy really well. And I, not that, that Elaine is a dummy, but he has that, he presents that way when you don't know him sort of quiet and shy and maybe not so smart. And I think 
Chris Pratt could definitely pull off looking not so smart. <laughs> okay. And then finally, now this one is a little bit out there, but I just think it would be awesome. And I don't know if this will land for you because you did not watch the show, but I picked for Cuthbert. I wanted to like mix it up. And so I did a gender flip. And I think that Cuthbert should be played by Maisie Williams. Oh, the Game of Thrones lady? Yes. So I was thinking she, like, she played Arya Stark, who there are a handful of fight scenes with her because she's like a sword master. And even though she's little, she's amazing in it. So I think you, she could pull off the physicality of a gunslinger in a way that was very um, believable. But I also think she kind of has that kind of cheeky charm to her where she could be a great Cuthbert. So... That's my yeah maybe yeah. I mean, why do all the guns so, have to be boys? Why can't one of them be a girl? Oh, that part I don't care about. It's just um, she looks super intense. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking of it more as like a jokester. Yeah, I mean, I sent you a picture where she looks kind of. She does get pretty intense as the series goes on, but she definitely has a lighter side to her when she's younger. Before the world is terrible and beats her into the ground. Like both of her eye uh, eye pictures back to back looks like super. I'm looking into your soul. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we want Cooper to have some depth, right? So, but I think she could be funny, but also, like, if there's a fight scene, she'd be amazing in it. She was she I was did, my favorite. Never watched Game of Thrones. Good for so you. Like, well, you didn't have your heart broken as... by it after eight long years. Awesome. Okay, so those are our picks. I don't know if we decided on anyone definitively. At some point, I need to go back and figure out who we've cast so I can make like a, a large cast photo that we could fill in. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I, I definitely want to do If I have some downtime in the next year, I'm going to I'm gonna make us like an ultimate cast. Photoshop a tree and then just have exactly. all of the characters hanging off exactly. of it. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. These are the fruits of your life. Oh, my God. How grim. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so I guess that's it for us this time. DJ, if they need some more of you in their life, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, Swing over to Deadliner.com, and you can uh, check out the uh, cast that we do there. I was informed that it's not called the Splattercast. (laughs) It is just called the Deadliner Podcast, so branding is not synergetic. (laughs) Um, And you can also find me here uh, with Rachel, and uh, soon to be behind a paywall, I guess, is some special episodes. Oh, they are special. (laughs) And then uh, other than that, um, occasionally I sell some stuff on Etsy. You can go search through the Muffin Spank archives to see what i got going on and uh that's it um there might be a a band camp or a uh um soundcloud channel opening up with a couple of albums i'm collaborating on but uh we'll see where that goes and i'll keep you informed perfect what about you rachel well if you want more of me you can find me on the zombie girls podcast where we review horror films from a feminist perspective on the stream queens where we review horror films that you can stream on the internets and on more deadly where we review horror films that are directed exclusively by womankind and between those and this that should be enough for anyone so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's it for me dj you want to take us out Thanks for giving us a spin on the old uh, sheep farm here, oh and oh we'll see you God. next time with another exciting episode of the cast. Of- Bye, everybody. Bye.